Hello, and welcome to Quills and Chills, the podcast that takes you behind the screams of the latest horror novels and movies. I'm your host, Rick Clifton, and each week we'll journey into the minds of horror writers and filmmakers, those architects of fear, to unravel the threads of dread that keep us turning the pages and sitting out there in the dark. So what do you say? Are you ready to meet the minds that craft our nightmares? Welcome to Quills and Chills. Hello and welcome to Quills and Chills. I'm your host, Rick Clifton, and today we are talking to Bram Stoker Award winner and USA Today bestseller, Cassandra Call, and New York Times bestselling author and creator of the Sandman Slam series, Richard Kadri. They have come together to create this amazing story that takes place in everyone's favorite New York City. It is a, a story that is filled with dark magic, ungodly monsters, or maybe not so ungodly, and the inevitable chaos that all of that brings. I do want to actually highlight one favorite quote that I saw on tour.com. It is a gore-covered cake for horror lovers. And I got to tell you, I could not agree with that quote anymore. <laughs> it is, this book is absolutely delicious. And of course, I am talking about The Dead Take the A-Train. It hits shelves on October 3rd. And for our friends in the UK, you, you will be able to see it at Halloween. So Cassandra and Richard, welcome to the show. Hi. Oh, Thank glad you very much. So before we get into the specifics of the dead take the A-Train, I always like to take a few minutes just to get to know you a little bit. So my first question really is, as a lover of horror myself, I'm always very curious about how people come to this genre and how you found it. So can you talk a little bit about what initially drew you to the horror genre as a writer? Cassandra, shall we start with you? Oh, sure. I... I think it was kind of inevitable I would end up in horror. So I grew up in Malaysia, and Malaysia is a country steeped in ghost stories and folklore. Every ethnic group had their own traditions, their own mythology, and there was space for it. Unlike in America, where everything just kind of gets flattened, um, each culture had room to be itself growing up. Every neighborhood, every block would You'd see temples next to mosques, next to churches, next to what have yous. Uh, it was all just there. And every part of my childhood just involved listening to these stories, whether they were from friends, whether they were from teachers. And a lot of those tales skewed really dark. Like Malaysia... Every year, it celebrates what is called the Hungry Ghost Festival. And the Hungry Ghost Festival is this thing where once a month in the year, the gates of hell open and all the ghosts are allowed to just come back. Some of them are there to chill out. Some of them are there to perhaps to find someone to replace them in the hells. But it is acknowledged that specters are roaming the city. In each neighborhood, they used to erect what we call get dies. And there were just stages, like open air stages with seats set in front and, and they would do variety shows. People would come on and sing. But these performances would continue long into the night. 
and you could go out at 4 a.m. in the morning and you would still see the performers singing and dancing and talking to the emptiness because while the living are allowed to watch their shows or in a coach, or oaks meant for the dead. And so horror just kind of was very natural coming from an upbringing like that. That's fantastic. Richard, same question. I, I always feel so boring after when Cass talks about this stuff. <laughs> Basically, well, I read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> That's it. And I watched a lot of monster movies. I mean, monsters from a very early age, monsters are my friends. I didn't, I wasn't a superhero kid that much. I, I was a superhero kid only to the extent that I, I knew about them to not get beaten up in my neighborhood because you had to know about superheroes. But really, I was a monster kid. And I started off with Poe, found Lovecraft later, then found better writers than Lovecraft. But I've been steeped in this stuff since I was a little kid. Pretty much the same for me. Uh, I started out with books very early on and then progressed to movies. And then now it's just, it's it's all consuming at times. So mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. Cassandra, I know that you, you're, you've written extensively for video games. I'm just curious though, do you also play them? Yeah, I do. I'm a gamer. Well, right on. So how does that actually inform your writing? Writing for video games versus writing for books, they're they're completely different animals. When you write for video games, narrative is in service of the story of the game as a whole. And I think it's easy to go, well, story is central, right? But no, at the same time, games are meant for the sheer animal pleasure. But uh, regardless of what genre you're looking at, even like point-and-click adventure games, it's sort of the thrill of being able to pull those puzzles together. Narrative is the thing that wraps around those jigsaws and tells you this is why you're doing it. And this is why you are able to have that fun. Same with like first-person shooter, same with like RPGs, Baldur's Gate. Like there is a powerful game under all of it. And narrative is there to convince you to keep playing for hundreds of hours. And writing for games, it, it's, what I like to do is I think compare it to the human body. You are just another organ. There is no organ more important than the other. Sure, technically we could work with like one less kidney, but probably best that you do not. And when all of those things, well, sorry, let me walk that back. All of those things come together for each other and just drive the engine forward. And when you write for video games, you really are writing for three different graphics at the same time. You're writing the shooty pew pew kind of guys who want speed run from the start of the game to the last boss within the first 20 minutes with no weapons whatsoever because that brings them joy. These people you think would not enjoy story, but all animal. We are all animals of mythology. We understand narrative consistency. We listen for it, even if we don't know we're doing it. And while they're speed running through the game, they're still you know, paying attention, trying to see if there are any inconsistencies. If the logic breaks, they notice, they get mad. And they're also running for the general demographic, the kind of people who would finish most of the game. Maybe do some of the side quests, maybe even come back to it if they don't get distracted, but generally don't waste too much time because they have lives to lead. 
And then there's that third demographic who writes extensively on Reddit complaining about that single tip on the lieutenant's shoulder and what it means. And it's an argument that readers were like 500 com comments and more. When you write for video games, you have to write for all three of those demographics at the same time. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Whereas if you're talking about linear fiction, books, TV, radio, movies, what have you, there's almost this covenant between the creator and the audience. The creator says, this is the experience I'm going to show you. It's going to last for X number of hours. You're going to follow me from this one end to the other. Now, there is no reason for the audience to stick to the end, but they know it's a guided path and they know it, it goes straight forward. And games is a magic trick that says you have all free choice in the world and really you don't. So yeah, none of it actually correlates whatsoever. That's great. Thank you. Richard, I want to talk a little bit about your music. I actually mm -hmm. checked out your Demon, a Demon in Fun City. Yeah, it's <laughs> my band. It's it's really great. I hear a lot of influences in there. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what inspires some of that music. It's really cool. A lot of it is inspired by film music. My partner, B.C. Smith, in fact, is a film composer. So it has that kind of filmic story quality, I think, that kind of takes takes it takes it more from a regular piece of music to something that's part of a larger story. There are influences, yeah, well, I mean, from any of the great film composers, Morricone, a lot of other people. Morricone is a big one for me. And on the more ambient side, you have people like Lustmord. You have people like Robert Rich. Some, you know, fairly, fairly radical people in some ways. I mean, the piece Crash that we did is you know, about the farthest we've gone with hardcore ambient, like really dramatic ambient. So we want to push both sides. We want to do the pretty stuff like Friends in the Woods and then the scarier end of things with Crash. All right. So when I picked up your book, I the first thing that came to mind was how did these two people meet and work together. So I want to I want to hear the story about how you guys met, and then I want to sort of talk a little bit about your process of of writing to them. I've I've written things and done things, produced things over the years with people, and we've always it's always been a little bit of an ebb and flow to sort of figure out what works and what process works best for everybody, and it's always different for everybody. So I'm kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about first about how you met, and then what your work process is like, your writing process. I got really mad someone stole my Kindle. And Richard was very aggressively empathetic towards the situation. <laughs> yeah, uh, you don't his books. Uh, yeah. Uh, so for a little bit of context, I was nomadic for like 10 years of my life. Like I worked in journalism and my home, like my home was Malaysia. So flying to and fro from Malaysia to like Europe or the States or what have you like several times in a month. It was doing very, very unpleasant things to my circadian rhythm. And after a while, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to break this lights up. And so I would like, get assignments seven hours away from where I was, get sent there, spend some time there, like live off the jet lag for a bit and keep going. And it kind of turned into how I ended up just 
going round and round in circles across the globe for 10 years. And my Kindle was probably the most precious thing in the world to me as a result of it. Before the invention of them, I used to just carry satchels of books around everywhere, desperately trying to to make sure that they hit the weight limit. But yeah, so the Kindle was really important. Someone stole it out of my hotel room and I cried about it. And Richard was like, about the whole situation with me, which is how we got to talking. And after that, I was like, would you be like curious about doing a co-writing thing? at some point and he had an I I had an idea that wasn't fleshed out but he had an idea that was a lot more fleshed out and I think needed someone else to help like add meat to the bone so to speak mm-hmm. uh what was your process uh, like writing did you do you guys bounce ideas off one another? you go away write for a little bit come back I mean uh... oh it was so chaotic um I had never written a novel at that point and I was just kind of crying at Richard going, I can't do this. And he basically just put me on a rope and dragged me uphill along the mountain going like, that. No, it's fine. You've written the novellas. It's the same thing. Like, I still remember what you said, that a novel is essentially three no- uh, novellas plastered together. Mm-hmm. And we did a big session for outlining and then we try to go like, okay, I'll take this chapter and then you take this chapter. And well, that, that did not work out. That yeah, that was, a, that was a big mess. We had no idea what we were doing. It just, it seemed logical. It was just like, oh yeah, you do a chapter, I'll do a chapter and we'll just keep moving on. No. But um, yeah, but unfortunately I'm used to working in a black box because that's how game writing works. You get chucked a random area or a random conversation. Half the time it's that thing is not even built. You can't even see the visuals for it. And you're like told, go right. And I took that for granted. Whereas I think Richard needed an actual like flow of like what the story was. And so I would leave things off for way too long. And Richard would like I, I need your chapter. Where is chapter? And I'm like, oh no. Then we had to quickly revise how we were going to approach that. Yeah. Yeah, it made, it made more sense for each of us to write huge chunks of it. And then one of us would write huge chunks, the other one would go over it. And then like Cass finished in a huge way the first draft of the book on their own. And then it was then it was up to me to sort of take that after our editor looked at it and had a lot, lot of notes. Then it was sort of my turn to go back, back and then go through a lot of the stuff. And then Cass went back through a lot of the stuff. And it made the most sense to do it that way. I mean, it, it was it drove us crazy at a certain point. By the end, it was really painful. I mean, by the end of any novel, you hate the novel. You never want to see the novel again. And this was two of us so we were both writing we were both reading multiple novels at the same time it, it was sort of double the double the wow. editing at the end and it was just it was a wild process and we learned a lot book two will be a lot smoother i think mm-hmm. we we worked a lot on setting up the story on this one but the mythology evolved as we were writing it. The characters evolved. Now we know much more about what we're doing. And 
of course, I'm going to jinx everything by saying book two will be <laughs> because I'm just going to ruin it. I'm just going to make everything awful <laughs> by saying that. But we, we worked it out. We worked it out. And I, you know, you want in the end for it to be simple, like chapter, chapter, chapter. But I, I don't know how other people did this. I'd, I'd love to know the process of someone like Gaiman and Pratchett, someone like that, to know. <laughs> I think our just to know how they did. We did similar to what we did and just did draw after draw, which did help like smooth out your process. I have to wonder if they tried our method first and just deeply regretted it in the beginning as well. Yeah, I, I have a feeling everyone's, I think everyone would try it that way because it just seems like, oh yeah, this is simple, straightforward. Let's just, let's just do this. And then you find along the way what's going on, what, how, how things really work. And it's such a relief at that point to be like, oh, okay, we now have a method. We can, we can move on from here and not drive ourselves crazy. Right. You get to that aha moment. Like, okay, this is how it's going to work. And I've been there mm -hmm. myself many times and it's, it takes a while. There's a lot of words that fly back and forth. And then mm -hmm. when you finally figure it out, it actually, it works really great. So, all right. Yeah, we were online a lot. We, we, we both have our uh, instant message stuff open all the time. And there was a lot of back and forth on asking on, on big sections, little questions, and then literally sending each other in uh telegram, just sending each other chunks of the books to read. Like, is this what you, you know, is this okay? What I just wrote to, to something I know that's related to what you're writing is this little bit correct so that I can move on from here. So that was a great way to work with the little sections of the book. Well, let's talk about the book, shall we? I got it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why you came. So I actually had such a great time reading this book. I know I said that at the start. I just had this book for me. Every time I went through a chapter, I was like, okay, I'm going to one more chapter and then I'm going to bed. Going oh, to that's bed. Awesome. And at the end of that chapter, I'm like, I've got to do one more. And it would, I'd look up and it'd be like three o'clock in the morning. I just could not put mm. this book down. It just, I've I got to tell you guys, really enjoyed it. And it just flows. Oh, the monsters. The magic, the spell casting, I absolutely, one of my favorite, I mean, there's a lot of favorite things, but one of my favorite things is the way Julie uses body art in this story. I just thought that was genius and inventive mm -hmm. and I just really loved it. But I don't want to talk about the book. I want you to talk about the book. So tell us a little bit about what The, the Dead Take the A-Train is all about. I'm going to make you do the pitch, Richard. <laughs> sure. The protagonist is Julie Cruz. She's a magic operative and she's down on her luck. She has a lot of power, but she's been fucked over by clients, ex-lovers, and her own really bad habits. Knowing that she needs help, she goes looking for her guardian angel. But what she gets is something very different and very dangerous. And that's the, that's the premise of the book. Really simple. It's really great. I think one of my favorite aspects of the book, and I mentioned this earlier to you, Cassandra, was uh, how right off the bat, we learned that this, there's this magical underground in New York City. And it's not really secret. It's kind of obvious, right? But it's also New York City, so no one really gives a fuck. It's like, it's just, yes. you know, it's, it's just like, oh, well, I got to be somewhere. So here, here we go. 
Uh, I'm That's curious. why New York is perfect. <laughs> I mean, the original idea was L.A. And then it's ah. like, that doesn't quite work. New York, it's like, like you just said, New York is where like, oh, that guy's a magician or something. I don't know. Weird right. stuff happens around him or her or whatever. Just, Everyone you know. just wants to get to work and go home and not be yeah. bothered. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And beat the incoming storm or whatever the case may be. Okay. And that was my question. I was curious why you chose New York versus, say, New Orleans or L.A. or even Kansas City. But that's it's perfect because it, it fits. It works. You're exactly right. It just was very obvious to me right away. This is New York is all, it's also a city about power and money. And a lot of the book is about those two things. There's a lot of Wall Street intrigue and taking shitty corporate America apart because that's part of the magic. That's part of the monsters in the book. And New York felt right for that kind of dark magic. Yeah, I was going to say, I did notice I sent some issues towards corporate America, I think, in the, in the storytelling, and especially towards finance bros. I'm kind of curious, is that your version of Eat the Rich? Yeah. And also yeah. the slight dramatization of all the time I've spent in the games industry, which is a lovely place filled with very creative people. And it's a joy to be able to work in games because you're doing something creative that makes so many people happy. But as part of Me Too movement a few years ago, this is also an industry where you have things like, you know, directors grabbing people by the throat in the middle of a party and just slamming them against the wall. There are some horrible stories that have arose because it is an industry where people feel like Working there is a privilege and it gets abused so badly. And I think more than a few of my resentments towards that surface a bit in the book disappear. Yeah, I worked in corporate America for a long, long time. I worked for advertising agencies and, and other kind of jobs. And I think it's a bit like Cass, where you're working with some creative people, but there are psychos. And you realize that in the end, all these places are versions of high school with a lot of money. There are power people. There are, there are people with no power. And the power people are really concerned about staying in their position and acquiring as much wealth and power as possible. And that's what a lot of the cor corporate stuff in our book is about. Just people greedy for power, mm -hmm. but also like corporate America, they aren't always very good at it. They're not very subtle. No. And unlike corporate America, I feel like some of it came back to they they got, well, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to spoil things, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably just edit that part out. But yeah, there's <laughs> definitely some great moments. I'll say that. So. Let's talk a little bit about Julie, if we can. I absolutely love Julie, but let's be honest, she's really kind of a hot mess, right? <laughs> so this this struggle of hers to keep her keep her shit together, but in, in the process of doing that, she's making an absolute mess of it. And I think for that reason, and it probably says a lot about me, it really endeared her to me. I wonder if you talk a little bit about creating that character, and I'd love to know who she's most like between the two of you. I think she's half half, both of us, in terms of being a hot mess in our early 20s. 
although the drug stuff is entirely Richard, I grew up in Malaysia, which has capital punishment for possession of even a tiniest amount of drugs. And it wasn't until I was 35 that I stopped running out of a room if I smelled weed. Not that I have any prejudice against it, but there was just that instinctive, oh God, the cops are going to show up and I am going to die. Yeah, yeah the cocaine and vodka was me. All, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> That's awesome. Overall, I think I found though something relatable in just about every single character in the book in some way, shape, or form, which kind of surprised me because that doesn't always happen in a lot of books that I read. There are characters that you love, there are characters that you hate, sure, but not always characters that you can find something relatable. Even in uh, Tyler and Dan, I was like, well, I I understand why they are the way they are. I thought that was a very interesting sort of approach to that characterization. What's it? What's your process for creating these funny or these horrible or these complex or relatable characters? I mean, are these, can you talk a little bit about the work that goes into that? Well, that's, this is a, that was a big part of collaboration, creating those characters. I had, I think I had more of an idea of Tyler when we started out and Cass had more an idea about Dan. And then we sort of learned more about how each other, how, how the characters worked from each other till they, till they became characters that either one of us could write and expand on. So Tyler was kind of a Weasley guy that, that, I, that I'd seen and, and worked with at times. And I'll, like I said, I, th I think Cass had a better handle on Dan, especially at the beginning than I did. And that was really important. Dan is very important. He's as important as Tyler, but in a very different way. I think process-wise for me, I always start with archetypes. With Dan, he, he is that murderous ex or boyfriend that I think every AFAP person or person who dates, you know, men end up meeting at least once in their lives. But it was important to me to not to make him a caricature because I believe a lot of the monstrousness that you see in people, my family was very abusive. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why they were doing that. I've not put a lot of thought into it. The monstrosity has to come from something. More often than not, it comes from someone who felt weak and who felt small and who thought the only way they would ever have power, would ever have any control or autonomy over their lives was to do the same thing. Because that is the only way they've ever seen power exists and it is in cruelty. And so I started an idea of that archetype and I think backwards just to ask myself questions like, why are they the way they are? What have they done to create this? And I think that's partially why some of the characters that are, well, all, all of the characters, as you said, have something you can empathize with because, and I think Richard does that as well, if more subconsciously, we all know monsters come from somewhere. They don't just appear and that's the tragedy of them, at least when we're talking about the real world and people. Well, and it's very interesting uh, that Dan was, one of my exes without a doubt I saw I'm sorry I was like oh, does, God. Does, do they know them 
<laughs> so, yeah. it just it came it came I was like oh my gosh wow <laughs> so uh, was one of mine as well <laughs> <laughs> I want to sort of talk about one of the things that really stood out to me about your book is the pacing and it, I, I I work in film I produce film I've directed film and I felt a lot of pacing especially as we get towards the end where you're you're jumping back and forth between scenes and, you know, in the middle of a chapter, you'll, you're over here and then we're over here and then we're over here and we're over here. And it's really driving me to, that's why I couldn't put the book down. It's the the way you pace this out. It really does drive that narrative in such an awesome way and the tension. And I'm just curious if, and you've talked a little bit about this, Cassandra, working in other genres, whether you're working on film or working in games, how, how has that impacted the way you set up the pacing especially as we get closer and closer to the end that is 100 richard's doing he's the master of pacing of all the books behind him it's just something i've done over a lot of books now that especially toward the end when you're having that compression of time and characters when things speed up speed up and slow down especially toward the end of a book when you have to you're not running toward the end, but you're compressing a lot of characters and action into a small space, which then lets you slow down again afterwards. So it's that jumping back and forth between, it's it's a tension release thing. And at the end of the book, you really, that's where the tension ratches up as high as you can get it. It's really well done. I, 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 I was just struck by it. I was like, this is really great. Really, really great. I, so I know that The Dead Take the A-Train is the first volume in a, a duology. And I don't think, I, I don't know how much you can tell us about what's coming, but tell us about part two. What can we expect? No. Because you really set it up nicely at the end. There is a very upset fox. She this very is, much wants to know why she's stuck inside a corpse. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of terrible things happen when you have an upset fox spirit running around in a corpse trying to figure all of those things out. That's as far as we can tell you, partially because if we say anything else, the editors will show up at our door. And we're preparing for party, and we can't do that right now. I am very familiar with the the men in black on black ropes that rappel down the side of the building and stop you from talking. I know that. Just like, hello, what did you say about the thing? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we we also, Julie also causes a lot of trouble in the book that we're going to have repercussions in book two that, that she's going to have to sort of unwind. But that's just how people's stories are, you know, uh, as you go along in life. You screw stuff up, you right. fix stuff, but Julie does it on a huge scale. There's definitely going to be a lot more sapphic romance and that awkward way where you've been friends for ages and then slowly something turns up and you're like, wait, what? And you're getting around that. <laughs> Especially, you know, when one is a hot mess and one is a hot mess in a very different way and they're trying not mm-hmm. to be a hot mess at the end of times. Right. That's right. the other yeah, we want people to know about the book. There's monsters, there's horrible Wall Street people, there's death, there's guts, there's eyeballs. But at the core of it, there's also a love story. There's There, there are mm-hmm. real people trying to find their way through life. And 
their way through life just happens to have monsters and eyeballs and and cor- vicious corporate gods gunning for them. Uh-huh. A gore filled cake, as it were. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're stealing that as a description. <laughs> I love it. I thought it was really great. Uh, I feel like I have to ask the obligatory question: Will there ever be a crossover between this world and Sandman's land? Kind of feels no. like. okay julia's julia's her own thing i uh stark stark's got his own thing julie's (laughs) got her own thing and we love having julie i love having julie on her own julie is figuring a way throughout the world she doesn't need someone as screwed up as stark i mean he's (laughs) he's well-meaning too but he drags along a lot of a lot of danger and la i mean stark is too la Oh, to ever to ever be in New York. I don't think he would (laughs) ever go that far from L.A. They would hang out there. They would like each other, I think. They would have. There would be good drinking buddies, hypothetically speaking. Absolutely, I I think. (laughs) Oh, I I think they would buying each other drinks all night. If they ever ran into each other, they would definitely have a good time. I could tell, and they would horrify Sarah. Because they would bring out the weirdest parts of each other that Sarah but, might not be ready to see all at once. I don't know. Sarah seems pretty. Sarah felt like she could get into it pretty quickly. She not a lot. I think turned her off or turned her around. I should say. So yeah, she, no. Sarah not... kicks ass. Yeah, she's all in. I love that. All right. As we wrap up here, I have one last sort of bonus round question, if you will. It's not about the book. It's just something I ask everybody. You're you're being asked to write a short horror story on the fly. What three random words would you choose to kick off this story? Oof. Wow. Squishy tensile tendons. Perfect. I would say self-destructive love and gods love love it love it love it it's great well thank you guys for talking to me today the book is called the dead take the a train it's uh on shelves october 3rd again for those of you in the uk you can find it halloween i urge you and implore you to support your local bookstores please um cassandra and richard how can our audience find you on social I am on Instagram and TikTok as Cass Call, C-A-S-S-K-H-A-W. And I refuse to be on any other social media platform because it's too much. I have to get Cass to teach me TikTok. I, I, I'm, I'm clueless. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky. If you just search on any of those, you'll find me. Perfect. Well, thank you both for talking to me today. I truly appreciate it. And guys, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Quills and Chills. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the mysterious and the haunted. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to support us by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review. Because your feedback helps keep those chills running down both our spines. And feel free to share the show with your favorite fellow horror enthusiasts. 
Also, if you guys have any spooky stories, strange encounters, or paranormal experiences of your own, I'd love to hear them. Reach out to me on social media or email me at quillsandchillspodcast at gmail.com. Who knows? Your story might end up on a very special episode. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you back here next time on Quills and Chills. Bye, y'all.